morning, choir. Good morning. It's good to see uh, you guys this morning. Um, we have some folks with us today that have been out for a while uh, due to physical inability to get here um, and just being, you know, sick. And as I was walking back there a few minutes ago, I was just thinking about the goodness of the Lord that they're here today. It's great to see Andy Eubanks this morning, and we're thrilled that you're here, Andy. And um, <laughs> Sir? <laughs> Not on the golf course, though. <laughs> Uh, that's just a little inside humor there. It's also wonderful to see this morning uh, Lloyd and Sheila Ingram with us. I told he and um, Lloyd and Sheila and Daryl, if they want, I asked where Joellen was, and Daryl reminded me she's in the choir. I said, well, you guys can join the choir, right, Ron? They could join. Even you, Daryl, you could join. All right. It is great to have um, our people back. It's always, um, you know, it's hard when you're a small congregation and you have folks who are ill, uh, folks who are just, you know, not able to get out. But when they return, to be able to see them again, um, I mean, it's just a blessing. And so I'm, I'm truly thankful uh, for that this morning. I wanted you to turn in your Bibles um, in preparation for the message this morning to 1 Corinthians 13. The Lord has led me this morning to go to a passage that deals with an example of this agape love that John introduces us to you know we talked about kind of a little bit of detail that hatred piece um, and we don't necessarily have to cite examples of that I think that we all understand kind of what that looks like and we gave some words that might help us to understand that a little better um, because we're prone to probably think oh I've never hated another believer but the reality is that that might not be the case. It may be the case that we have at times had that in our lives. Um, but obviously we know if we belong to Christ that he wants us to love like he loved. And so this morning we're going to take a look at an example that I think has been lost in the pages of scripture. And I'm hoping that it'll be encouragement to you to think about this. How are you demonstrating agape love as a Christian? When was the last time that was shown to you in your life? Uh, those are very, very important um, points of emphasis. So I wanted to read 1 Corinthians 13. I'd like you to stand, please, as we read God's Word. There is a tendency to... Um, not pay attention as much when you know a passage of Scripture. So let's ask the Lord to help us, right, to do that. 
If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. When you are a part of the body of Christ, the issue of love is right in the center. Because we have an example, the perfect example, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who demonstrated his love to us by dying on the cross for our sins. Lord, help us to demonstrate love to those in the body of Christ who we have the privilege to be connected to. Help us not to think more of ourselves than we ought. But help us to be humble before the Lord that we might be instruments that he can use For his honor and his glory as we have opportunities to represent him in the places that he puts us. Let's pray together. Lord, we um, thank you for another day of life. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have this morning to celebrate our Lord and our Savior. I hope this is not the first time we've done that in this past week, but that we celebrate you every day, that we celebrate the relationship, Father, that we have with you through Jesus Christ. There are so, so many people in our world who are lost and who are hopeless. And Lord, you told your disciples that the world would know that they belong to you. They they were your disciples by their love for one another. And agape love is a volitional choice that we make.
and attached to that word are the words sacrificial and unconditional. And we understand because we are in relationships how that works and when it doesn't work. And we understand that apart from being filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, that we cannot produce this love on our own. We know that we must walk by your Spirit in order to produce the fruit of the Spirit. You do all that. Please help us to be dependent on you as we face different situations in our lives, in this body and outside this body, to demonstrate what you speak about through the Apostle John to believers about the importance of demonstrating agape love. May we do that because that's what you desire for us in obedience to you. Help us as we worship, Father, that we would do so in a way that is pleasing to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, I, this morning, or last week when I chose the video that we started off with, uh, I, had, I told the guys this morning, I said, turn it up, turn it up. I wanted us to, to know the power of Easter. Because when you talk about the fact that he shattered the darkness, you know, he crushed the enemy. Uh, he defeated hell and death. You know, that is powerful. That's the power of Easter. And so here we are, we've, the week after that. So we've come together and we have no choice but to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we want to crown him with many crowns because he's the Lamb and he's upon the throne today. So let's all sing together, crown him with many crowns. <laughs> crown him with many crowns,
challenge you to victory. Amen. Every one of us that are here today, I hope that's the truth. Uh, let's uh, sing together to Christ, our hope in life and death. What is our hope in life and death? Christ the Lord, Christ the Lord. What is our hope?
Thank you, Ron and choir. Uh, appreciate that so much. And as they were singing, I couldn't help but think that it will be a glorious day, but not for all. Um, when the Lord comes, there'll be those left behind. And I am convinced that there'll be those left behind that may know what has gone on. I hope that you know, without a doubt, that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that as the choir was singing, O glorious day, that it truly will be a glorious day for you as an individual. One, is, one thing is true, we don't pull people up with us, and nobody can pull us up, so I hope you're ready. I hope you know. Many years ago, a shabbily dressed boy trudged several miles through the snowy streets of Chicago to attend a Bible class that was taught by D.L. Moody. And when he arrived, he was asked by one of the gentlemen in the class, why did you come to church so far away? Why not attend a church that's closer in proximity to where you live? And the boy simply answered, because you love a fellow over here. How important is the demonstration of agape love? Just using that example, we could close our Bibles and go home. And think about how we do or do not demonstrate agape love which if we're doing a test, begins in our families and moves out. And obviously the body of Christ is a part of that examination. It's true that we're going through 1 John, and I don't know how long it's going to take us, and I honestly don't care. All I know is that John is a guy that would drive you crazy, maybe even more than myself. Because when he introduces a subject, he then pins a little bit more and talks about the same subject again, but adds a little bit. And then when you think, well, he's done with that, he will surely not bring up the issue of love again. Because his audience would be absolutely sick of it. He does it again. He would not be one of your popular preachers today. Because everybody today wants something new and something fresh. I've yet to figure out what that means. I hope it means that they want a pastor who puts on deodorant. I don't know what they want, but what we have is the word of God. And what's presented to us beginning in 1 John chapter 2, is the issue of agape love. 
So we need the Lord's help to truly absorb what's being said today so that when we walk out, we've not just had an exercise, but we've actually got something that we can take with us and consider. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning by your Spirit to understand better the issue of agape love and how that fleshes out. Help us not to be one of those this morning that says, I already got this down or I already know all this. But help us to be teachable. Help us not to think through agape love as it relates to the simple ones to demonstrate that too. But help us to think through the ones that that's more difficult to demonstrate toward. Please help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we begin with it's on the table. What's on the table? Well, there's pork chops, and there's green beans, and there's applesauce, right? And for dessert, there's strawberry shortcake. It's all on the table. What you grabbing first? The green beans? Probably not. When I was on the when I was a little boy, on the table was set before us what we would eat. I don't know how the younger ones may hear this, but this is how it was. Whatever was on the table, you had to deal with all of it. There was no free get out of jail. You don't have to eat that. Whatever was on the table, you ate. My father was one of those that said, that's what's for supper. You remember those days? Now, just drive through three different drive throughs and you'll satisfy all the kids in your van. When I grew up, you had to deal with everything that was on the table. There wasn't one thing you could pass over. You know, that's the way it is in the Christian life. As it relates to the Word of God. It's all on the table. Now we can ignore it. We can even put it in a corner. My suggestion is that we would deal with it. That we would do what God wants for us, and that is deal with what's before us. That was certainly on the mind of John the Apostle as he wrote this verse, which begins to discuss the subject of loving your brother. And he repeats the discussion in chapter 3, and he repeats the discussion in chapter 4. And every time he adds a little bit more to it, And as I was studying to prepare for today, in the next section, last week, the Lord's like, no, that's not where you're going to do. You're going to give these guys an example of what it means to demonstrate agape love. And of course, my initial thought was, well, we have that example in the person of Jesus Christ, and we do. 
The greatest example for us is the Lord Jesus Christ there in the upper room and washing the disciples' feet. But there's one illustration that I believe has kind of been lost in the pages of Scripture. You'll recognize the person when we get to it, but I don't know that you and I have concentrated so much on what was at stake when he demonstrated this love. What will you do with agape love? Some of you may think, well, I demonstrate agape love. I do that on a regular basis, and if you do, that's wonderful. But how many of you have ever run into a situation where you know that the Lord wants you to demonstrate that, but it's the person or the situation you're in, and you're like, time out. That ever happened? Where you knew what to do, but maybe you didn't do it, or Thad knew what to do, but maybe made the volitional choice not to demonstrate agape love. I can't be the only one guilty in hearing that. I think it's important for us to read what John says here. Where did it go? They're having to redo the word? Oh, reboot. I was like, you can't redo the word? Okay. This is what it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. The one who loves... His brother. So that makes him a what? A brother. Abides in the light. And we've talked about that peace being the person is in fellowship with the Lord. Okay? Um, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And that word loves there is the word agapao. It's the term agapao. Um, there are two words that are associated with this verb. And it's very important that you grab onto these terms. Two terms associated with the term agapao, which is the verb form. Thank you very much. Which is the verb form of the noun agape. So the two terms are sacrificial and unconditional. They take the focus, these two words alone, take the focus off of yourself. And they put them on others. But in order to demonstrate agape love, you must make a volitional choice to do so. Like, for example, husbands, the same word is used when talking about loving your wives. You make a volitional choice choice to do that or to not do that. So it's important that we wrestle with this issue of making the choice to demonstrate sacrificial love and unconditional love. In my life, there is a person who's demonstrated both of those to me on a regular basis. And that is my wife. Almost married 37 years. 
two years ago, and, or actually almost three years ago, December. Not that she had not demonstrated that before, so hear that. But when you're being taken care of by your wife, when you can't do anything for yourself, you're like, whoa. And I mean anything. And she's right there by my side taking care of me. Demonstrating that. It was sacrificial. She wasn't waiting for me to get out of the hospital bed to demonstrate that. She just did it. Kenneth Wiest, in writing about agape love, says, Agapao speaks of a love which is awakened by a sense of value in an object. Or we would say in a person. Right? So what value, and this is a great, great question, what value do you place on those that God brings in your life? Even the stranger, even the unbeliever, because there's application outside of just the believer. So agape love must be demonstrated to those that have no part with God. But even more so, it's imperative that we demonstrate this in the body of Christ. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, meaning a person has yelled at you in the body of Christ, they are mad at you, and they let that be known. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me on a few occasions. And all these different scriptures come up in your mind, right? <laughs> Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I'll repay Right, that's our favorite one. But the reality is, hey, Lord, you still want me in the midst of this hard circumstance that doesn't seem to be advantageous for me. You want me to demonstrate that. All I have to say is Judas, the Lord Jesus demonstrated agape love to the one who'd sell him out. He washed his feet. Feet are disgusting. He washed his feet. I like what Gene Getz says about this particular word. To me, this really highlights for us best what we'll go to in the scriptures. In commenting on it, he says, Agapao is doing what is right and best for someone even under difficult or negative circumstances. Oh. Why do guys write stuff like that? To help us to think through life. Because we live life and outside of here where, you know, you spend a, a, most of your time outside of these walls. So thinking through this word agapao, meaning doing what is right and best for someone even under difficult or negative circumstances, is something that should be on our minds. And it is very clear from 1 John that the issue of love in the body was one of the foremost subjects on John's mind. And he wrote it. And he wrote it again. And he wrote it again. 
Why? Because he heard love from who? The master teacher. And he saw love demonstrated by who? The master teacher. Yeah, but I don't like the subject. Okay. How many subjects in the Bible do we like? See, it's not what we like. It's what's best for us. See, I was telling someone yesterday in the context of something completely different. You know, there's an umbrella of protection that God has for his church. It's just the way it is. This is what God says. That's the umbrella. We're under it. When we're under it, we're protected. When we step out from it, we're in trouble. And let me put up both hands when it comes to demonstration of agape love. There's times when I've walked out from under that umbrella. How about you? Well, I want to encourage you today with what I wrote even down in my notes. <laughs> kind of a lost example. <laughs> it's one that like you're going to know the guy and you're going to go, yeah, I know him. But I don't know that you're going to remember that you known, have known him in this particular context. But in order to appreciate this example, we have to get historical. Is that all right? Good. Turn in your Bibles because you're going to have to use your Bibles today. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 7. That's where we're going to begin. Acts chapter 7. This great example begins with the stoning of Stephen. That does not sound like a pleasant time, and it was not. Stephen was before the Sanhedrin. Seventy men plus the high priest. Let's just put it this way. He's before the Supreme Court. How would you do before the Supreme Court? Can you imagine what that must be like? To stand before the Supreme Court and argue something? <laughs> That's what's going on here in Acts. Stephen is arguing for Jesus Christ. What does it get him? Stoned. To death, the Bible tells us. I want to skip all the way down to verse 58. I want to make one comment, and that's from verse 55 before we read it. What does it say? But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a scene! Here's a man who's being stoned to death. And the Lord is so, so gracious to him. And that's what we have here. But in verse 58, it tells us what took place. It says, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named 
Saul, who we know as Paul. Then it says, verse 59, look at this. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said that, he fell asleep. There ought to be a couple of things that come to your mind when you read these verses. And they all point back to the Lord Jesus himself. And remember when he was on the cross. These are familiar phrases to us. If these things sound familiar in Acts chapter 7, well, they should. Because we are told in the life of Jesus Christ when he is on the cross, he says one of the statements, Father, into your hands I commit my what? Spirit. Sounds somewhat familiar to what Stephen is saying here. Receive my spirit, Lord Jesus. And then you remember from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What does Stephen say here? Lord, these are amazing words. Like, you know, we... One of the, I think one of the things that happens, and I don't know if you're going to appreciate this, but one of the things that happens to us when reading Bible stories, we go, oh, that's neat. That's nice. That's this. That's that. You know, we hear them so much, it's like, the man's being stoned to death for the cause of Christ. He's really on the front lines. The first martyr in the church. (laughs) And I get that he says, receive my spirit, Lord. But this next part, what an example. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. These are prayers, by the way. He's calling out to his Lord. Do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Was Stephen's prayer answered? You ever thought about that? I think we can make the argument that Saul was a result, one of them, of Stephen's prayer. The very man who's standing there with the robes at his feet. You know, I have to say, I'd never thought about that. <laughs> I was like, wow. You know, because I, you just read through it and you're like, oh, okay, this happened, this happened, this. But to hear, right, as I'm reading, I'm like, wow, Lord. To hear, to see, to read what Stephen said at the end is so encouraging Number one, because he knew he was going to be in the presence of the Lord. But he also understood that the church would continue and the Lord needed warriors in his church. And I kind of think that Saul is one of those 
That's certainly an answer to the prayer here at the end of chapter 7. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Well, so it begins with the stoning of Stephen. And it continues with the scattering of the church. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples they would be what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. And that's the outline of Acts. A lot of chapter 8 is devoted to Philip. We're just going to look at the first part of it because it fits our narrative. So let's read verses 1 through 4. I'm not going to give you everything. You can read that. But I'm going to make one comment or two. The Bible says Saul was in hearty agreement. The word there in the Greek means he gave full approval. That's the idea. He was fully behind it. You know what that means, to be fully behind something. Right? I mean, you see in our day, when people, someone is fully behind something, they might go so far as to stand before a building with a sign, fully behind what's going on. I'm for this or I'm against this. We understand what it means to be fully behind something. Right? I'm fully behind the Arkansas Razorbacks. Look in my closet. Look on my truck. Fully behind them. Some of you are fully behind Alabama, and we see it during football season. Or Auburn, are you fully supporting? That's the picture here. Paul's not like one of those bystanders going, well, I'm not so certain I'm in this. He's all in. He's all in. That's the idea of the word. He's in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And notice this, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So even in the midst of this persecution, see, the Lord knew all that's coming. It's not a surprise. The Lord's not like, oh, gee, I didn't know that was going to happen. No, he knew. And what was going to continue to advance in the midst of the persecution? The word, the gospel, Jesus Christ. That's what it says. Verse 2 says, Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house. Now look at his intent, how dedicated and devoted he is. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Notice verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered, they went to their homes and sat in their... That's not what it says. I love this. What a response to persecution. Those who had been scattered. Who were those that were scattered? The church. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And then we'll read verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The persecution didn't stop them from their mission. It only opened up new doors for the mission that the Lord had given to them. But it says in verse 3 that Saul began ravaging the church. The word means wreaking havoc. It's a word that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Psalms, to describe wild boars 
destroying a vineyard. Saul's focus was to do what? Destroy those belonging to the way. That was his focus. By the way, the focus of the world today is no different. The focus of the world is destroying the church. Destroying anything and everything that has to do with this book, the Bible. I remember when I was a kid, the Bible was referred to in school. It wasn't a weapon in terms of striking, but it was presented in love. This is what God has said. Not only is the Word of God out of schools today, but it's mocked continuously. Now, you know what man can't do? Young people, listen to me. If you have the Spirit of the living God in you and you attend a public school, they can't take that from you. You have opportunity to speak up for the Lord in the midst of persecution because that's what goes on a lot today. Man is out to shatter the message of Christianity. I'll tell you how real that is. Last week, last Sunday, after church, we're standing outside, me and my family, and I can't remember who else was out there. I want to say it was the Russells, but I'm not positive. And these two guys walk, uh, drive by in a car and say, Hey, that's not real. God's dead. But he's not dead. He's alive. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, Paul's on a mission. Wreaking havoc. The world's on a mission. Wreaking havoc. How do we respond to that? We take the opportunities when presented and give them the truth. That's what we do. Well, it continues with the conversion of Saul. We're going to get to our example, but it's not yet. You go to chapter 9, so flip your page. I have to flip mine. I have big, big print in this Bible. I have to flip these pages a lot. There's only like 20 verses, it seems like, on a page. But I can see it. Go to chapter 9, and it continues here with the conversion of Saul. Now, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, I need to give you some information about chapter 9. John Walbert does a really good job of summarizing Acts chapter 9 so that in its historical context so that you can kind of make sense of what's going on. And I'm going to read, read you what he says. He says, when you're moving through chapter 9... Of the book of Acts, you need to understand Saul's movements. Okay, that's important. 
This might be one of those things you're like, well, Thad, why is this important? Well, it is. Um, the chapter begins with him in Jerusalem. Okay? That's verses 1 and 2, what we just read. And then he's on to Damascus. All right? And that's verse 3 through verse 22. But then the majority of theologians believe that between verse 22 and verse 23, you have Paul in Arabia for three years. Galatians chapter 1 tells us that. And then he's back to Damascus and finally to Jerusalem. So there's, what I'm saying to you is there's a period of time between verse 22 and 23 that occurs. Okay? And, and, and we don't have that here. Luke does not record that for us. So that's a disadvantage because we, we just keep reading the story. But there's time that goes by, a three-year period of time goes by before um, Saul returns to Jerusalem. So I wanted to make mention of that before we get too far along in this text. So as we begin in verses 1 and 2, Saul's still about persecuting the church. That phrase there, breathing threats and murder, is used to speak of the desire he had to slay the Lord's disciples. Okay, so you need to get in in order to appreciate this example that we're going to come upon. You need to appreciate the context of Saul's life. He's not someone that's hanging out with Christians. He wants to destroy them. He's not a friend of yours. Okay, he's not on your team. Right. In fact, you could just look at the language of the text. He's a nasty guy. He's going after him, pulling him out of houses. He's against the way anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we have people like that today in our culture? Absolutely we do. We have a media that's out to destroy the name of God and Jesus Christ. Out to destroy the hope of the gospel. Um, That's where Saul was. But what we have in verses 3 through 9 is the beginning of the transformation that takes place in this man. In fact, David's message last week, which I really, really appreciate, I read this section through the lens of grace. (laughs) Does that make sense? Amazing grace. Because when you hold this guy up, you go, well, he doesn't deserve Christ. He sure doesn't deserve heaven. That's what grace is all about. You know what, guys? We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve the amazing grace of God. But it's right here on the pages for us. Jumping off the page. Thank you, Pastor Elder David, for pointing out grace. Because it helped me as I was reading through this. It's grace. The Lord wasn't waiting for Saul to get right. Verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened. (laughs) I like that. That he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. I know in the Bible, I have places that I wish I could have been. Right? You ever done that? Been kind of awesome to be one of those that walked across the Red Sea, the dry land. <laughs> I don't know, that'd just be awesome. I always thought, well, that'd be, you know, to be one of those, to see the wall of water, I mean, like, wow, standing up, um, that would be kind of awesome. Just because I'd love to have seen that ark would have been kind of incredible to be there in the midst of the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know. Not too crazy about lions, but that would have been incredible to see those lions' mouths shut. You fast forward the pages to the New Testament to think about the life of Christ and when instantaneously he calms the sea. It's not calming down, it's instantaneously calm. To see Peter walk on the water. That would have been incredible. To hear that short prayer of his, Lord save me. <laughs> right? We always make prayers long. They don't always have to be long. I know one of the things I've learned as I matured in the Lord, and there's a long way to go. Short's good. Lord save me. Lord help me. You ever done that? Lord help me. Help me. I don't know, it would have been kind of incredible. Some guys were with him. The Bible says, verse 7, the men who traveled with him, verse 7, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus, how would you have liked to have been chosen for this? Remember the reputation, <laughs> which he alludes to. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus, named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias said, sounds great. Remember, Saul had a reputation, right? He was known. And here it is, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. I haven't heard from just one or two. You know, I've taken a poll. There's a whole lot of people. Hey, I've heard about this man. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all 
who call on your name. Right? That, that was who he was. But the Lord changed this man. He was changed. Verse 15 says, But the Lord said to him, meaning Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. You ever thought about the fact that if you belong to the Lord, you're a chosen instrument of his to do the same thing that he was sent to do? We have a job. In a culture where no one wants to work, we have a job as Christians, and that's to share the gospel. Look at what Saul's job would be. Go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings. Did that happen? It sure did. Keep reading in Acts this afternoon. The sons of Israel. For I will show him how much fun he will have for my name's sake. No. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Okay, enough of wanting to be on that road there because that's not good language. Suffer. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. I'd say there's a change going on in this man. How about you? Then it says... End of verse 19. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. In other words, with the followers of the Lord. That's what the meaning is there. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And it is important to note, this would be a pattern for Saul named Paul. He would go to the synagogues. He would go to his people and he would proclaim Jesus Yes, his mission was, and I think sometimes people get confused about this, but his mission wasn't just to the Gentiles, it was to the kings. And notice it says here, the sons of Israel. In other words, all of it. You got all of it. You got the Jews, you got the Gentiles, and hey, to top it off, you got the kings. I'm going to put you in front of all those people. We may not have a platform like was put before Saul, but you know what we have? We have a platform, and it's at your school, right? It's at your school. You may be a student. You may be a teacher. It's at your job in your cubicle. I was trying to think. I don't think I've ever worked in a cubicle. I don't think I'd like that. In a cubicle, right? You, you, you have people around you. You may not be able to say, open with me to John chapter 3. But you can live John chapter 3 in front of those people. So much so that they look at you and say, hey, what's wrong with you? 
hey, I heard that one of your brothers died or your sisters died or your, your mother or your father and you just seem to be, you're all right? Yeah, I'm all right. They knew the Lord. They're with him. See, unbelievers, they don't have that hope we have. So what an opportunity to flesh out what we believe. We may not have a platform like him, but we have a platform. Well, he begins his ministry of preaching. And if you read through the book of Acts, you're going to see he goes into the synagogues. I want to make mention of something really quick. Look at verse 20. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. That should not be lost on us. You go tell a pagan person, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. See what kind of response you're going to get. See, the issue for man then and man today is a rejection of Jesus Christ. I reject him. He's not the Son of God. He's not the Savior of the world. Instead of them driving by in cars like last week, they're at your job, they're at your workplace, right? They're at your schools, they're at the gym. How many of you go to gyms? You work out. You can tell I don't, right? But boy, I would think that's a pretty big place to kind of be a witness. See, all these places we have, just like Saul had, we might not appear before kings, but we have an opportunity to represent the king of kings. Now look at this. This caused some confusion. <laughs> well, why did it cause confusion? Uh, clear, because Saul had a reputation. Look, verse 21. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Hey, isn't this the same dude? You ever had a, you have an example maybe of someone that before Christ, you know, they're just, because pagans live like pagans, they're just living like a pagan and, you know, exercising all that paganism stuff and then they get converted and, and, and you hadn't seen them in a while and you're like, hey, who are you? It happens. That's what was going on here. He had a reputation. Keep that in mind. That's what he had. Bible tells us in verse 22, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. We don't use the word confounding too much, so I thought, well, I'm going to look it up in the Greek. What does it mean that he was confounding them? The word means bewildered. They were bewildered. We don't use that word too much. I'm like, okay, what's it? Well, the word confused is a good word. It describes someone who is beside himself. In other words, hysterically, I can't believe this is going on. You mean that dude? So then some time goes by. You come back to verse 23, and it says, When many days had elapsed in this section, 
Saul leaves Damascus in a basket. He had shown up before, remember, earlier in time. He comes in blind. He leaves out in a basket. How about that? It's pretty good, right? The Bible says, well, many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. You think they want to get rid of him? Answer, yes. But his disciples, his followers, so by this time Paul had those who were, Saul had those who were following him, took him by the night by night. And let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Here it is. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples or with the followers of Christ. But they were all afraid of him. Remember, some time has lapsed. He's still in the limelight. He still had this reputation, right? And so the Bible tells us in verse 26, that the disciples, those who were followers of Christ, they were afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. So this is the scene. The man's on the road to Damascus to get names concerning those who were part of the way. The Lord stops him. Saul is saved. Ananias enters the picture. He goes to Saul. The Lord decrees to him what his mission would be. He goes to Arabia for some time, I believe, is indicated with the Lord in Galatians 1. He's back at Damascus. This scene goes on. He then is lowered in a basket and he goes to Jerusalem. The Bible says that the followers of Christ there were afraid. Look at the first two words of verse 27. But Barnabas. One theologian described Barnabas' actions here as one of the maximum examples of of agape love. You ever thought about it in that way? This is how people think of it. I know. Because if I read the Bible, it says, Barnabas was a son of encouragement. And then they think about the life of John Mark, and they think, yeah, you know, Paul, after that first journey, you know, John Mark quits on him. So Paul's like, eh. And Barnabas takes who? John Mark. So he is an encourager. And we give him a round of applause for being an encourager. But before that happens, here this is. And this is an example. You can say, yeah, that is an example of encouragement. Okay. But it's mostly an example of agape love. What benefit is there for Barnabas with the people that are watching? Because remember the reputation of this man So this is what happens. He takes hold of him. What a picture. In other words, hey, this is what's being said. Barnabas is like, I got you. I got you. 
You ever done that? This is what's being said. These are the extenuating circumstances. This is a rough situation. The person who needs the, the agape love is kind of standing like this. And you walk over and you go, I got you. That's what happens. Barnabas took hold of him. In a moment when Saul needed it. Took hold of him. The Bible says, and brought him to the apostles and began to do what? Share. Share what? (laughs) About this transformation in this man's life. And he described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road. And that he had talked to him. And how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. I look at this and I go, there was a gap. You had the followers of Christ and you had their thoughts of Saul and you had Saul. But then here comes Barnabas and he says, I got you. I know who you belong to. I'm amazed by the example. Because in the heat of the moment, Barnabas says, I love you, Saul. See, love in our culture is based on feeling. If it feels right to do, I'm going to do it. Even in relationships within the home of some Christians, there's the temptation, I'm going to love this person if I feel like loving them. Or if they do this for me, okay, I'm going to take hold of them. But if they don't do this, I'm not going to do that. See, agape love is a whole lot different. Agape love means this. In Teresa's worst moment, in her worst moment, by the way, who's my wife, for those of you who may be visiting, in her worst moment, and listen, husbands, this is the way it is. This is agape love. In her worst moment, I come over and I take hold of her. You're mine. God's given you to me. And if I understand this book correctly, Teresa, in your worst moments, I am to demonstrate agape love. Is that true? I can't think of a scene, many of them anyway, quite like this one, where you have a man who's willing to stand in the gap and say, Saul, I love you. I actually typed it out for you. I forgot that I did. (laughs) That's the, the verses. What's your love story? That's how we're going to end. What's your love story? What's that like? You say, Dad, what's love story? I'm not talking about you and your wife necessarily. I'm talking about your love story with the Lord. And the demonstration of that with others. What's your story? All of us have one. Here's what some, 
I've heard over the years because it's been said to my face. I can't love that person. What would you say to a person? I mean, they walk in your office and say, Dad, I can't love that person. What, do you give them a payday and say, have a great day? <laughs> but paydays meaning little candy bars. I love those little paydays. They're so good. You remember that, those commercials years ago with Lay's potato chips? You can't just eat one. The problem with those paydays that we have in the office that Amanda holds in her drawer, they're about like that big. And one is just not sufficient, so you want more. What do you say to the person? You simply say to them, well, no. Just go love them. Is it that simple? If you said, hey, go love them like the Lord wants you to, yeah, I know that, that, but you don't understand. I don't understand. But I do understand. See, I've had people pretty close to my face before who weren't saying Merry Christmas or Happy New Year. They were Christians. I gave you the example several weeks ago of me getting in the face of a gentleman. I've, been, I've done both. I've, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of not showing it. And, and I certainly have had times where I'm like, man, Lord, this is hard to love them back right now. So that's where the rubber meets the road. That's like we can talk about all these great terms and, hey, this is what the Bible says and we need to. But it's where the rubber meets the road. It's loving my wife like Christ loved the church. It's loving other believers so that those outside see that I belong to the Lord Jesus. It's loving an unbeliever when it doesn't make sense to love them. That's it. What will we do with what has been presented today? Isn't that true with every single message that's given? Whether it's Sunday school or church or small group, what am I going to do with what I've heard? Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, there are many examples that we could go to in your word where there's a demonstration of love. But you reminded me by your Holy Spirit, this one's a pretty incredible example. Because as we saw as we went through, Saul had built up this reputation for being a man who wanted to destroy Christianity and Christians. And by your grace, he was saved. And he began to preach that Jesus Christ indeed is the Son of God. And people were just taken back by, they couldn't believe it. So he makes his way back eventually to Jerusalem. 
He wants to hang out with believers. That's what believers want to do. But he's rejected. They're afraid. They're people. I probably would have reacted the same way. But in steps a man who could stand in the gap and testify to the change in this man's life. Lord, thank you so much for those in my life in the past that I can think of who've stood in the gap. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as Christians to stand in the gap for other believers and to be willing to be on message with those that don't belong to you so that they might come to understand that there is grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And it was Paul that said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in light of um, what we celebrated last last week, uh, a dead God can't give you strength for anything, but a live God can. And that's what happened to Paul. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at uh, Gene White's celebration that we had, and um, Thad had mentioned that several times. His strength is perfect, and when... Um, when I thought of that, when he said that, I thought of a song right off, right off the bat. I said, I need to pull that out. And then we had Salvation Army, when, and I, I sang, sang the song, and then Buddy Seal got up, and he started sharing with the guys uh, who, you know, who are fighting addictions and things like that, saying, you know, it's through God's strength is how you can overcome this. And then uh, John Burnett, who was teaching that night, uh, also in what he was saying, he mentioned the same thing. He mentioned the power of God uh, to be able to give us the strength to do that. And um, so I just thought of this song here, and it's something that I need to know, that his strength is perfect in this messy, messy life that we live in. Uh, his strength can be perfect. Listen to the words. and Sing along if you know it. Jim. I can do all things Through Christ who gives me strength But sometimes I wonder what He can do through me No great success to show No glory on my own Yet in my weakness He is there to let me know. His strength is perfect when our strength is gone. He'll carry us when we can't carry on. Raised in His power the weak become strong His strength is perfect His strength is perfect We can 
the power that he holds when we truly see how deep our weakness goes his strength in us begins when ours comes to an end he hears our humble cry and proves again his strength is perfect when our strength is gone he'll carry us when we can't carry on raised in his power the weak become strong his strength is perfect his strength is perfect his strength is perfect his strength is perfect strength is perfect. I've got a story to tell you. I'll let you go real quick. So he referred to, Ron did, the going home, because that's what it is for a believer, a going home service for Jean White. Miss Jean, when she didn't eat at the right time, she would kind of say things that were a little off. One day I decided to take Buddy Seal with me to see Miss Jean. Everybody knows who Buddy, Buddy, raise your hand. There's Buddy Seal. He's back there in the blue shirt. He's pointing to Tony. That's not right. So I take Buddy with me and walk in the room. Miss Jean's there, and she said, she looks straight at Buddy. And she said, oh, Pastor, I'm glad you brought the meat market manager today. <laughs> she worked at Food Giant. She thought Buddy was the pastor, and I was the meat market manager. That's quite a, speaking of confusion, let's pray together, I'll let you go. God, thank you so much for another day of life. Help us as we leave today through your spirit, by his power to demonstrate agape love to others in the name of Christ. Amen.